Hey, everybody. It's Kevin Carr, your host. Welcome to episode number 22 of the Movement is Medicine podcast. And I'm joined by the uh, sore and achy and tired Brendan Rierich, um, as well as our special guest today, Megan Pomerensky from north of the border up in uh, Winnipeg. So uh, welcome to both of you. Thank you. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Megan. Yeah. Hello. Uh, well, so Megan is an old friend of ours from probably what we met was that's why 2014, I believe, correct? 2014, yeah. Yep. And uh, back to the CFSC event up uh, north of the border with you guys. Canada, you That came was probably one of the first us. 10. Yeah, right? very early. One of the first, first five. I looked back. Even. I looked back at the 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 um the list, and it was yeah within like the first year. And uh, then Megan came down and hung out with us too at the gym for a little while. And mm -hmm. so you know, I I will spare my introduction. I'll let you give your introduction. But Megan has done an amazing job. One writing some articles for us at Movement is Medicine and Strengthcoach dot com uh, from her perspective as a coach and physical therapist. Um, and I think she can share some amazing insights with us throughout this episode. A lot of great topics for both trainers, uh, regular Gen Pop exercise enthusiasts, enthusiasts as well as physical therapists. Um, and so, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we can kind of go from there. Thanks. I've been in the athletic therapy coaching world now for nine years, which is crazy to say. And it all started for me from my own injuries where I realized there was tons of gaps in our medical systems, how we deal with injuries, how we deal with pain and how to connect where somebody is to where they're at. Going through so many ups and downs with trying to get back into the gym, trying to get back to sport, trying to get back to activity, that that's really where I focused my practice. And why I jumped into CFSC so early, like you mentioned in 2015, I guess it was, and wanting to come spend time in the gym because training and rehab are the same thing. And I think that is very misunderstood in our industry. And that, that along with empowering people to take control of their own health and fitness is my biggest mission. And if I can do that, then I'm going to be the happiest athletic therapist out there. And <laughs> with your mission now um, as athletic therapist, what's your day-to-day -day like? Like, um, tell us kind of what your daily practice uh, consists of. Lately, it's been a, a shift into focusing more on chronic pain management with people, whether it's from injuries, just from sports and life or car accidents, workplace things, uh, things that have been persisting for a very, very long time. Most of my clients one, maybe one out of five is like an acute fresh injury to me. Most of the time it's all the chronic stuff that just hasn't gotten better. And the reason I've been able to build that reputation of being able to help these types of clients and everything is because I strength train rehab clients. Yes. So I, I, I have done the, the traditional strength training thing. Like I led group classes at the gym that I used to work at and was very deep in the CFSC model of training and now i've just brought that into athletic therapy and focus it more that way which has been really really exciting yeah again i uh go ahead me or you you go yeah, yeah i was gonna say uh you mentioned the the training and rehab being being the same thing and i i agree wholeheartedly and i think if anyone's listened to our previous podcast i've discussed that at length what i view training and rehab and how they're the same and why they're the same. Would you mind kind of expanding on that? Or maybe do you have a definition or how would you 
describe that to another trainer or client, how training and rehab are really the same thing. The simplest way that I've been able to explain that is, is I can't remember who I got this from, to be honest, but it was just that rehab is training in the presence of an injury. And that's it. Mm. There is, there's pain. Sure. Maybe there's inflammation or whatever is going on, but at the same time it's exercise. There just happens to be an injured area, but the rest of the training looks the exact same. So there's no need to start defining things as corrective exercise or I'm only in rehab. It's like, no, you're training something or one part of you is just hurt or irritated or whatever word we want to use. Yeah. I've heard, I can't remember. Maybe you said it, Kevin, or Mike said Mm -hmm. it, but you're, you're not uh, injured. You're only 85% healthy, right? So if we, we reframe it, right? I have 85% of you that I can train and then the other 15% will rehab. Um, but yeah, it's all training. So, all right. I, lo- I love that. I just wanted to hear your, your definition or explanation. Yeah, I think people start to define themselves as their injury and it's like, Oh, I'm injured. So I can't do anything. And it's like, no, your injury is just a part of you. It isn't you. So therefore right. like, let's just. Yeah. And you think that from a rehab standpoint, I think it's just that the adaptation you're looking for is to recondition whatever that mm-hmm. injured piece is while everything else might, the adaptation might be performance um, outside of that. And hopefully at some point it all becomes performance related, but um, yeah, you know, I think we always move down that. I think, Brendan, you had that nice image of, like, I think it was a yellow and red spectrum where, yeah. like, you were, like, you move from something that's more rehab-based to more performance-based. I use that with the interns all the time. I, I just draw it up on the whiteboard and say that I made it up. And um, that's <laughs> – yeah. I use that well, all the time. <laughs> I actually stole that from uh, Ch- Charlie Reed Fitness. So just so we have a little graphic here. All right, so training and rehab – you're always doing a little bit of both depending on where you're at or what your injuries are, college athlete, weekend warrior, post-surgical. Like, so you got, right, you're, you're, you can't use your right leg, but you have a left leg, two arms, you have heart, cardiovascular system, a core, uh, neuro- neurological system, skeletal system, lymphatic system that can all be trained still. So. Yeah, exactly. And somewhere along the way, too, rehab has just gotten so passive, right? Like people just yeah. automatically assume it's modalities and hands-on therapy and that sort of thing when it's always been a full spectrum of care. Like, yes, that's part of it. But yes, exercise has always been a huge part of it. It's just somewhere along the way, it's gotten misconstrued where like exercise is past rehab. And it's like, you don't do that in rehab. You do that when you're done rehab for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, you touched on how you said a lot of your time is spent now with chronic pain people and, um, myself as well. I have a lot of people I see who've had pain for a long period of time and usually end up with us because they didn't <laughs> I have thought a solution. You were gonna say that, I thought you were going to say you have chronic pain. <laughs> not, not yet. I'm not, I'm not, I myself your, have, I'm not like you yet. I myself have chronic pain. <laughs> oh no. Cause I was going to raise my hand and say, Hey, I'm, I'm a, I'm a candidate to work with Megan. Yeah. Um, yeah. You could work with either of us. Um, I'm not, I'm not working with you. <laughs> you, got, you got bear paws for hands. I, I know those hands on me. Um, go break my leg. <laughs> the, the thing with chronic pain people, I mean, they're a whole ball of yarn, uh, that you start to unravel because unlike someone who might come in with an acute injury with their chronic pain 
that from a physical standpoint is everything else comes with it. The psycho and social issues that they've dealt with in dealing with that pain in their history and then their belief systems that have kind of come along with that. And it can be especially challenging or intimidating for a coach or a therapist to deal with someone who might not be as experienced with it because sometimes that's the person you label as you know the difficult client or the malingerer or the person who who always thinks they have something wrong with them and it's not necessarily that they uh are a malingerer it's that they don't uh, they're frustrated they don't understand they're scared and they're anxious and so if you could give some perspective on you know for younger coaches or therapists who are listening to this how do you deal um with starting to communicate with that person effectively to get them to be willing to train because often there's someone who's uh might not be wanting to exercise like Brendan was just mentioning they might not want to uh be willing to go into the gym and I know early on in my career those are the people that would be frustrating or hard to work with but then in looking back those are the people I probably learned the most from in practice um in figuring out how to communicate more effectively and how to get them to move along that performance spectrum from the passive rehab side of things yeah I agree. Like I learn the most from these types of clients all the time. And I'm grateful every day that my practice started out in like an insurance disability type management situation, because I was dealing with this stuff from day one of my career. When I, you know, you look at the textbook and it's like, this is supposed to happen and it is not happening at all. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, just tell the person that it's safe to exercise and that their pain is just sensitivity and they'll be fine. So just, just start squatting, start deadlifting, do whatever it is. It's safe to lift. And the, the key is that you can't just tell someone that they're okay and that it's yeah. safe to lift and that it's safe to exercise or whatever you want to say. You have to show them and show them and let them feel it for themselves by creating an environment that meets them where they're at, essentially. And if that means it's glute bridges on the floor and relating that to a hip hinge and a deadlift to start that's where you spend your time and then gradually just change and manipulate the position that they're in to eventually get them to that hip hinge or the deadlift. Because if you just see like, here, pick up a weight, let's start bending your hips. And they're like, Whoa, I haven't flexed my spine or bent my hips or whatever it is in a year because they're so scared. They're not going to do it. And the flip side of it is their nervous system is going to be so jacked up because they're scared. Like our nervous system doesn't know the difference between types of stress and pain and any of that. So as soon as they just have this image in their head of you're going to make me lift something, they're going to start pumping out all this cortisol that's going to jack up the sensitivity of the nerve fiber. So everything's going to hurt. And then they're going to be like, told you so I can't do this. So if you meet so them where I, they're at, then you have a better chance of getting there. When I, when I hear you say all this, it makes me just think that what you're really doing is you're using activity and movement to empower somebody yeah. is essential. Though I think the word, the key word is empower. You're empowering them to actively. I think that's where a lot of us go wrong as if we're therapists, uh, massage therapists, physical therapists, is we don't empower them to move actively because we do so much for them passively. Like mm -hmm. we do the movement for them. Now, sometimes you have to start there. I get that. Or you start there and say, hey, look, when I, when I move your hip like this on the table, like it doesn't hurt, right? So like, let's try to do that actively and make it something that you can do on your own, like kind of almost letting the dove 
fly away. So yeah, I think the word, I mean, the word that sticks in my mind is you're empowering people to actively move again and yeah, you're grading exactly. and you're grading their exposure. Exactly. Yeah. That's why my business name is empowerment rehab and training. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad you picked oh, up on that. See? Look good. at that. Look at that. That's a softball. <laughs> there we go. There we go. But yeah. you're right. It is graded exposure. It's the exact same way. Like if somebody's scared of squatting or if somebody's scared to bench press because of an mm-hmm. injury, because of pain, we treat it the same way that we do with any psychological construct. Like if you're scared of spiders, first you think about the mm-hmm. spider, then you picture it, then maybe you look at a picture of it and get in the same room, right? Like it's that step-by-step gradual exposure. And that's how we have to look at exercise for people who have chronic pain because it shows them that they're safe. So they get that confidence to be like, hey, I did this. Now I can do the next thing. I'm willing to try a little bit more because I had some success. Mm-hmm. And People need to see success if they're going to keep going with some sort of habit change, What, no yeah. matter the habit change. So if that's meeting them on the floor in an exercise, let's do it. Let's just keep it going step by step every single time. Yeah, and it, it speaks to why medical professionals, uh, physical therapists, athletic trainers, chiros, whoever it might be, um, need to be able to develop fitness skills and go go to seminars or read or participate in strength training so they can confidently empower someone and progress them from the entry point to training to whatever end of the spectrum we want to get them to. Um, one thing I always say to our staff is like, you want to find the entry point that makes them feel good and makes them feel confident. Even if you feel like it's too easy, you want them to get that little uh, dopamine release where they feel a little bit motivated and they feel confident rather than like you said, that person who you have them start deadlifting, they're like, Oh my God, I haven't done this before. And the alarm bells go off. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas they get like, when you said, if you teach them with a bridge and they're like, yeah, that's pretty easy. I feel good there. You're like, okay, see, like we can start to do that. And then maybe the next session you say, okay, let's go do a loaded hinge. You just created an environment for them where they felt empowered because you knew how to progress an exercise or regress or exercise to meet somebody uh, there. And that's like for someone in a medical position like yourself is such a powerful skill to be able to have. Whereas I think someone who might not have the strength training experience and background would just be like, oh yeah, safe to deadlift, just go deadlift. And they go and do it. And that person ends is now more scared of the weight room than when they first went in there. And so the, having those, you know, kind of fine skills to understand where the starting place is and how to build it is, is so valuable. Yeah. Like they don't really teach us that in school for athletic therapy, for physiotherapy, anything of that. Like I took one advanced resistance training course, which was us going into the gym and it was learning how to program a superset on different machines and then like here we're going to do a straight arm lap pull down and a bent arm lap pull down until fail. like that was that was advanced resistance training for us arnold's arnold's super training <laughs> arnold's yeah. are the arnold's bodybuilding <laughs> book and then you have like your rehab course which is learning range of motion it's learning proprioception it's learning basic strength training it's learning sports specific stuff. So maybe three weeks of the semester was on actual strength training. And even then, like, it's, that's just an intro, right? Like you can't Mm -hmm. do much of that except be 
safe and learn how to really not kill someone in the gym. <laughs> <laughs> really, Megan, where? Down. So, to play the other side of this, where do you think the line is between working with someone such as yourself, medical professional, and a fitness trainer? I, I always want to also. We need to know the tra trainers need to know when to punt the ball as well to someone such as yourself. Where where do you see that line, or how would you describe that line? Is it pain? If the pain is unexplained, yes, then punt them over to a therapist for sure. Like if you know that the pain is because they just tweaked their back because they raked weird one day or something like that. I think that's mm -hmm. oftentimes very safe to work around and you'll know very quickly if it's going to get better with a warm up. you can keep going. If it doesn't again, shut it down, talk to somebody else, that sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. Most of the time, as long as you have an understanding of the pathology and this is where the different strength training backgrounds, I think, differ maybe Canada, US, and even within the countries, if you can under do enough assessment to understand the pathology as a trainer and know what's going on and when load is appropriate, when's not when it's not appropriate, that's the determining factor in my opinion. Yeah, I think um one thing I always like, so I talked I did a whole talk with our interns today about dealing with pain that comes up in the group. The big thing <laughs> that we need to have our interns comfortable with is like when a client, when an athlete says, Hey, my knee hurts or my back hurts, what do you do? And I gave them like our checklist, like, okay, yeah. immediately just pull out the thing that hurts for that session, find a, a non-painful alternative. And then your next step is refer to John or refer to a PT to get a, uh, a diagnosis and get some sort of understanding of the pathology. Um, and then, we bring them right back in. And I said, that doesn't mean that person won't be there for the next training session, but it means that as far as it means for us, if we're just wearing a trainer hat and yeah. we don't have any, you know, medical skills, uh, we want to have an understanding of what they're dealing with. And then that 90% of the time, it's going to mean that we just keep training. Uh, but we have a better understanding and a set of guardrails from the person who is more fit to, uh, you know, make a decision uh, in regards to that. That's where the strength coach versus exercise physiologist versus therapist. Like there is nine, I agree like 90% of it's probably going to be the same and it's not going to change the training or the rehab, even if they stay mm -hmm. in the therapy world, the diagnosis doesn't change majority of the exercises or majority of the treatment that we do. It's just understanding how to not make something worse and mm -hmm. create the environment for it to heal the way that it needs to heal because most of the time things will heal better with load and exercise. There's going to be that 10% of things that don't and need the true rest or anti-inflammatory work or whatever other intervention. And you don't want to miss that 10%. Mm -hmm. I think is the key. Mm -hmm. Kevin, you pulling up that article right now? Uh, well, I'm looking at uh, one of the notes because it just made me think about um, like the one thing you said about like respecting pathology um, was one of the points in your article that you wrote. And so I think that, you know, a lot of times people, when they get a diagnosis from a doctor um, or they get an MRI or they get an X-ray to them, one, they like that because it, like Mike always refers to the Jim Croce song, like I got a name, like it makes them feel like something 
Uh, so that's a very old oldies reference, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but it makes them feel good because they got a diagnosis, right? Because people want answers when they have pain that they don't understand. It, it feels like they give them an answer. But at the other side of that coin is that they feel like, you know, oh, it says that I have degenerative changes in my back or it says that I have, uh, you know, fraying in my labrum in my hip. Um, and that makes them feel like, okay, I can't do these things, but it also justifies why they have pain to them. So it's kind of a two-sided coin. Um, but what a lot of people, either amateur trainers, people who might not have this understanding or gen pop people, um, for them, it always in their mind takes away exercises or takes away their ability to train. And I think it's important and it'd be great if you could touch on, um, the idea behind like what pathologies, uh, mean. Um, when you hear someone say they have degenerative changes, um, I always say that's like saying you have wrinkles, um, you know, as you get older, I don't know who, in, who started saying that, uh, I, I love that, uh, saying that to people because they're normal as people age, it doesn't define, uh, what that you can't do things. It just might mean maybe we adjust load or volume or frequency often. Uh, from a training standpoint. So if you could touch on kind of how you talk to clients about, you know, when they come in and say, Megan, look at my x-ray or look at my MRI. And there's that sense of panic that comes with it. How, what is that conversation like? It's framed. I don't even look at the reports until I get yeah. my physical Yeah. Because the reports are always going to be like two pages long because exactly. Radiologists are really, really good at finding, like, that's their job. What yeah. everybody ignores on the bottom of the reports, though, is the one line in fine print that says need to clinically correlate yeah. and make sure that lines up with what you actually see. So if somebody shows up with their scan report, I just put it face down on my desk and I'm like, cool, we'll talk about it later. I'm more interested in what you actually feel and how you're actually moving and, and that sort of thing. So then we go mm -hmm. through the full exam and then I'll look at the report and be like, cool, like it shows there's something at disc at L4, L5, but look in our exam, we tested all the nerves. We tested all the muscles. Like we know that's all good. So just because it shows this, that doesn't mean it's driving your pain. And because I've gotten the proof first in their physical exam and ruled out the bad things that way, then they tend to buy into it a little bit more. Whereas if I just looked at the MRI report and I was like, oh yeah, this is normal wear and tear. And this is this, they're going to be like, who are you to tell me this? Like, you're not a doctor. Mm -hmm. The doctor said this, the doctor said this. And then I can say, well, did the doctor actually test all your nerves? And they're like, no, no one's ever done that before and tested each nerve root and with their myotomes and that stuff. I'm like, perfect. I know your nervous functioning because you could flex your ankle. You could flex your big toe. So therefore that nerve is firing. Like, I don't care what the report says. Mm -hmm. at that point so it's it's all about framing it from the positives in the exam and or if there is like positives in like the it's a good thing not a positive test um <laughs> if it is a positive myotome which shows there is a nerve root impingement then i can be like okay cool that lines up with what we see here so now we can make the adjustments that we need to and really what i'm more looking for in an imaging report is that it matches the person and it also like their physical tests and also what they're complaining of and what they're reporting. Like a lot of people and the research supports this will have the terrible looking MRIs and x-rays and all of that and be completely fine and not have any physical symptoms. Mm -hmm. So if we can 
not reproduce anything in their exam, then again, they'll buy into it. So it, for me, it comes to the physical exam first and then the report second. That's huge. And okay. I guess you, you said something about radiologists too, that, you know, I think sometimes people forget, like they're trained to find everything and be able to look at everything because a lot of their job is to find the big, scary things, right? Mm. Not necessarily degenerative changes or narrowing uh, in the foramen or something like that. They're looking for a tumor. Uh, they're looking for fractures. They're looking for like the big red flag. So you got to take off the table. Um, and that's why, you know, sometimes they get frustrated. Hey, they sent me for an x-ray and MRI. I know they're not always indicated, but they're also looking for the big scary things. Um, and when you get an MRI or an x-ray report that doesn't have those things, it's like, oh, well, this is great. There's probably something we can work with. And like, you might see it as like the glass is half full, right? But when they start to read all the words that they don't understand on that, that MRI sheet, um, they're like, oh, this must mean there's something wrong. And you're like, actually, no. Remember the last that important line at the end, must clinically correlate. Um, and you can, like you said, by doing it in that order, you can draw their attention to the thing uh, that's important and that, you know, you're actually doing pretty well. Yeah. Could, could one of you share, and it's in your article, Megan, maybe you know them off the top of your head, or Kevin, you have the article in front of you. Can you mm -hmm. share for like the listeners the stats on people who have something on an image but don't have any pain? I think that's the one of the most telling things for me is like, yeah, 90% uh, of people or whatever have a herniated disc, but they don't mm -hmm. have back pain or 70 or whatever it is. Hockey players have hip labrum tears, uh, but they don't have pain. Like if you look at a pitcher's shoulder, they have labrum tears mm -hmm. from all the pitching but they don't have pain. Do you have, can you share? Yeah, I have, I have uh, Megan's article in front of me. So yeah, I'll read this right. off um, some specific examples. So 90% of people between 50 and 55 years old have age related changes in their spine, but nine out of 10 don't have back pain. Um, 90%. <laughs> so the vast That's majority, 48% uh, yeah. of people between ages 20 and 22 have age related changes in a disc while 25% had a bulge. Um, so there goes the getting old analogy. It happens in young people um, as well. 77% um, mm. of healthy, pain-free hockey players have hip abnormalities shown on imaging. Almost every single like professional guy that we have have, yeah. have been diagnosed with like a, a labral ir irregularity. 20% um, of healthy, pain-free adults have partial rotator cuff tears. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, and, and that's a huge eye-opener. <laughs> when you say that to somebody, um, that they, 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 they could have had that abnormality long before they had any sort of symptom and it could have nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. So, or just letting them know, Hey, you're, you're normal. You're like everybody else. Like yeah. you're not alone. <laughs> Lots yeah. of people have this. Exactly. And I think this is where as healthcare professionals too, like we could likely do a better job before the client gets the scan and give them that heads up. Like, we're doing this to rule out the big, bad, scary stuff. We're not doing it because it's going to change the rehab or it's going to change the treatment. And the good doctors will do that. They'll say like, it's just for confirmation purposes, for insurance or whatever it is. It's not like it's going to change the plan. It's just so we have all the information documented for medical legal reasons, really. Kevin, do you want to share the, oh, sorry, Megan. No, I was going to say, yeah, just compared to like being like, let's get the MRI to like get the answer and change everything. So I I love playing both sides of the coin here. Kevin, you want to share 
uh, your story about Jim Minucci and what you found after working. Oh yeah, massaging so, his back, right? His his upper back well, was so sore Paloff, and tight. Well, Paloff was seeing was him. He was he. Okay. Yeah, so he was in my group as a client. I was just working as his trainer, really, at that time. There was no uh, manual therapy. But he had, like, chronic thoracic pain um, that, like, you know, was consistent, like, didn't go away, wasn't really fluctuating. So we sent them to John uh, to, to be seen, and John checked him out. Um, just it was kind of weird the way his symptoms would show up didn't really respond to treatment. So John referred him uh, to go get some imaging and he had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma um, on his spine. And so like, it brings up the point of like, the reason you do the imaging is to rule out the big scary things because then he immediately mm -hmm. started treatment, got through it, uh, did all his treatment. He's completely cancer free we, now. Yeah, um, we still drink with him 10 years later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but that's that's why you do it, and that's why you refer to someone who can say, "Hey, you know, why don't we go get another look at this?" And so, for, if you're a trainer listening, don't think that you can just do T spine rotations and foam roll it away. Like, <laughs> ask them, like, "Hey, if this is consistently not feeling good, and you're having kind of weird pains and referrals, send them to somebody who then can, you know, you know, take a good look at it." And now. It, sometimes people get afraid to make referrals because they think they're going to lose a client. This guy comes to the gym four days a week and he came all the way through his cancer treatments. He was actually extremely thought, thankful that we yeah. made referrals. So exactly. And so it's, it just speaks to the need to work in a environment where you can make referrals in both directions and have a, a team for somebody as opposed to you trying to do it all yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I just I wanted to bring up that example because I don't I also want people to know that, like, the medical system is a wonderful thing and sometimes it is needed. And if no one knows my backstory, I'm probably only here because of the medical system. So uh, just some I mean, sometimes you do need it. Sometimes you do need the back surgery. Sometimes you do need to get the disc removed. Um, but, yeah, rule out the big, scary stuff and then. It's all training in some way. Exactly. We're still, at the end of the day, everything needs movement mm -hmm. in yes. some capacity, even if it's passive range of motion. Yeah. It's still movement. Megan, something I think that some people would like to hear, um, I know that you said you've done and been doing some, like, uh, remote therapy for people, mm. correct? And, like, yeah. that's something I know you picked up, uh, obviously, probably during COVID but have still been able to do. What is that like for your experience and for the client's experience? Because I think some people traditionally hearing like that you might do remote treatment and pain management for people, you, the average person would be like, how could they do that for me <laughs> if I'm not seeing them in person and they're not putting their hands on me? But I know it's become more and more popular and been very successful for a lot of people. And so if you kind of talk about how do you deliver that and what is your process like there? Delivery-wise, it's 90% the same as what I would do in person. It's often a longer history, um, subjective exam side of it because, I again, because I don't get to put my hands on the person, I have to ask them a lot more questions about trying to pull out when their pain happens or what provokes it. And sometimes that means like, people don't 
give the best history on a good day, never mind <laughs> when they're like, is this even yeah. really legit? Your guard's up already. So it's a lot more questions to try to get a really, really clear picture of what's going on. And then I'll still take them through the exact same movement screen, physical exam. So I do like a top tier SFMA test most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, breaking out whatever needs to be broken out. I go through range of motion in just different positions. So if I'm looking at shoulder flexion, for example, and I know I can't do passive, then I'll get them to lay down and do it that way. So gravity helps. So I can still get as much information as I can that way. And it's again, a lot more talking and communicating because I can't always read body language as well on Zoom because the camera's far away or it's a bad angle. So it's a lot lot more detailed conversation about different sensations and where exactly do they feel it um you know trying to get them to really identify open angle closing angle pain um more detailed questions around exercise as well because again they can't always show me everything because they're at home in their office we can't go pop out into the gym and do things so i it's so it's more questions in in all aspects and then most of the time, like I'd say well over 90% of the time, I've never had to see somebody in person. There's been a few occasions where I'm like, something's not adding up here. Like we should meet in person or you should go to whoever's local to you. Just be, And it's similar to like the guy you just mentioned. Like it was just something was not adding up. Um, and there's always going to be the time where you need to get your hands on somebody, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, and then it's just going into the same the same rehab principles apply online as they do in person. The same training principles apply. So instead of me putting my hands on somebody to manipulate range of motion or improve joint mechanics, it's teaching them how to foam roll. It's teaching them how to use a lacrosse ball. It's doing some other sort of parasympathetic shift activity to calm their nervous system down. So oftentimes I'm doing more yoga and breath work at the beginning of a session because Typically, I find I do manual therapy for the nervous system just to mm-hmm. calm things down. Um, that's the biggest benefit I see to it as opposed to like fixing things. So we'll do maybe 10 or 15 minutes of yoga, breath work, meditation, whatever seems to resonate with the client and then get into the training and the exercise. And I will tend to just be more cautious on Zoom and go for like the most basic regression right off the bat. Oftentimes when I'm in person, I I tend to start more in the middle ground and because I know I always have the regressions there. But again, because I'm not with that person, just in terms of safety for them, if they're the only one in their house or their pain Mm -hmm. is that sensitive or things like that, I will start with like the, the bottom of the regression list and then work my way up as opposed to starting in the middle and going either way or laterally. Just curious, do you find more success with people because it's an active type of session? Because there's literally, you can't do anything passively for them, (laughs) right? So they they have to participate. Or is it equal amount of, I mean, would your preference be to, to be in person or can you so, for example, I feel like I can be 80% as good on Zoom as a coach, but I can't be 100% as good. But I if agree. that's I, what I have, then that's what we do. Yeah, I, I know I can help someone on Zoom. I know I can be safe. I know I, I can be effective. 
Mm. I believe there's always going to be something to be said for the human connection in person. Um, yeah. Just to be able yeah. to read deeper into things. And it's, I find I can build a relationship quicker in person than I can on Zoom. And the relationship mm -hmm. is a big part of, especially chronic pain rehab, but in all aspects, you get better outcomes with rehab and training if there's a better therapeutic relationship. And that's been shown time and time and time again. And I know I'm just more effective at that in person than online. If we're talking yeah. just pure strength gain results or range of motion increase, then I'm just as effective mm -hmm. online. And I'm not, okay. I'm not certain if it's because it's more active or if because the person is just more bought in because they're more open-minded because they were willing to do it online in the first place. Mm -hmm. Because we, yeah, like we all know my has a big role in everything. Yeah. I, I would guess it's get. probably a little bit of both. Yeah, right. It's probably a little bit of both. Like they're willing to do a Zoom workout. They're pretty serious. Yeah. Um, exactly. But they're all, yeah, it has to be more active. Okay. Yeah, so I, I, find, I, <laughs> uh, I find online clients in general, whether they're rehab or fitness related, are the people who are very interested in training or in rehab and probably have done yeah. some reading and done some research and have a little bit of knowledge probably, at least in my experience, the people that I train online always they're either trainers or fitness enthusiasts and i would imagine from a rehab standpoint it's probably someone who has read or had some experience uh because they're like i need to find the person like they found <laughs> right. you yeah because yeah. they were like this person is the right person for me and so they're probably a little more invested in the process sometimes i think probably because of that yeah and i've also found that a lot of people in general, whether they're coming in person or online, a lot of people are more aware that hands-on therapy is only temporary for them. Mm -hmm. It like people just there, there seems to have been a shift lately in in the clients that I'm working with, anyways, where most people are actually acknowledging that straight up because of mm -hmm. whether it's their reading or experience or who knows what it is, but they're coming and saying like, yeah, you know, like I do massage or I do foam rolling or I do stretching and it just never quite seems to get me anywhere so i'm ready for something different like they're just sick and tired of it i guess so yeah. again they're a step ahead they want to get better we're going to get mm -hmm. a better outcome for sure yep absolutely mm -hmm. brendan kevin um question for you um as someone uh -oh. who well, as someone who's had a number of injuries <laughs> uh, and, might, and might have some yes, ice on his, on his knee currently. Um, yep. For you, like, thinking back, I mean, I can think back to physical therapy experiences that I've had, mm -hmm. uh, both positive and negative, or rehab experiences that I've had, positive and negative. Um, yeah. What were things as, like, from a patient standpoint, right, client standpoint, where like you were frustrated in treatment um, or you felt like, you know, you weren't served as best you could, that it maybe changed how you treated for Megan as you as well. Uh, I just know Brendan's had injuries, so it was easier to ask him. Um, but I can, <laughs> like, I can, for instance, I can think like I had like a real yeah. traditional PT mill experience, right? Where I had a guy come over, look at me, and then I had a PT aide uh, with a sheet 
uh, look after me and like five other people. And it's crazy yeah. because I think about like what our process is like and what I know Megan's process is like, where you're like spending an hour or 90 minutes even with a person one-on-one, -on -one. but that's not really the norm. Um, we're kind of in a bubble. Like if you go to a lot of PT settings, that's really what it is, uh, where there's a terrible client to, uh, therapy ratio. And, uh, you don't get that, um, client trust relationship that you said is so important that you can get through zoom. Um, for me, I know I always think about like, I don't want that experience for anyone who comes to see me. And I just don't know if you've had a similar thing, Brendan, some of the things that you've rehabbed. So as you've mentioned, I've had a few injuries, usually my back. Uh, so maybe the third, fourth time I hurt my back, back squatting, just like everybody else. Uh, Mr. Boyle, uh, you win again. Uh, I went to a chiropractor and I just remember he, I told him and like explained to him, he listened to me and everything and explained to him what I had going on. And he literally just, no assessment, just cracked everything. And it took less, it took less than five minutes. And he said, you're going to have to come back for 12 sessions. And this is when I was in college. So Kevin, you and I had just met mm -hmm. and I knew just, I knew enough about training and what was right and wrong to be dangerous and know that like this is not okay to to just make a blanket assumption that i am correct in telling you my symptoms and you just crack everything that i asked you to crack um with no assessment and then tell me i have to come back 11 more times and it cost me 40 dollars for for it was a 10 minute conversation and a five minute adjustment. Cause he did my like hips. He did my, he turned me and cracked me. And then he did my neck on both sides and I was good to go. Um, and he was going to cure me in, in 11 sessions. Um, so that was, that was probably the worst taste I've ever had in my, my mouth from a, a therapy experience. I did do when we were in massage school, Kevin, mm. uh, we, I joined massage envy. So, it's like $60 a month. You get one session a month and then you go and see whoever you get that day. Mm -hmm. um, and that was good experience for me to know what not to do and what to do. So I had multiple uh, sessions there that were not, not good. Uh, but I did meet this guy, John, there who was incredible. And I was like, well, this guy's my guy. And I was like, and, and he was incredible because well, not just like the manual work, but also like his he'd at check in with me, like what kind of pressure is, do you need more? Do you need less? Like we could talk like and it, again, it comes down to like he created a relationship with me and he was good at what he did. So that was helpful. Um, but maybe this chiropractor that I had was good at what he did, but he, he created no connection. Um, and yeah, that was the that chiropractic experience. I then later found a chiropractor who spent a whole half hour with me and did some sort of assessment before he did any adjustment adjustments and had me do some strength training stuff as well. Um, so that was who I ended up going with. Um, but yeah, so that was, and then the massage envy was just another example of, it was good for me though, from a, a, a massage therapist perspective, because that's what I wanted to do. Um, to learn what's good and what's bad. So those are my two experiences. I've been injured many other times, but I won't share, I won't share all those. 
Well, I think it's important to like, like you said, uh, you learned what you didn't want. Like I remember, I think back to yeah. when I went to PT originally for my shoulder, I ended up with a good PT when I transferred from where I was, but initially I went to a place and it was literally like, Oh yeah. Labral tear, give them the labral tear sheet. And they were like, they did some, they did like, got my shoulder moving. They're like, all right, go do these exercises. Here's your sheet. And like some kid would come over and look and, then I'd be like, am I doing this right? And they put me on the little machine, this thing. Oh, the arm bike. Circle, the arm bike. The arm bike. I'd do the arm bike for a while. And then right, I do got, stuff. We and got then, this kid uh, here. I don't know where to put him. Put him on the arm bike. Yeah, and then they'd get, put the thing on my shoulder for a little bit. And they'd be like, all right, see you in two days. Um, and I remember being like, I don't even know what just happened. And then I ended up getting someone who was like one-on-one and thinking like, oh, wow, this is like really, really good. And then mm-hmm. spending time with John when we first opened up movement is medicine, we would go spend time with Paloff and he spends one-on-one with every single person he's with, um, kind of, you know, taking them through everything, explaining and educating. One thing I remember I learned from John was John would pull out the book and be like, see, like, this is what we're working with in your shoulder. This is what we want to think about and do some education. And I remember thinking like, oh, that's really good. He takes the time out of the session to, you know, teach them something, which never happened in a therapy setting for me. And that's what starts to endear those people to build some trust with you because you show an interest in providing some education within the session. And it's something that I try to think about is like now on our whiteboard in the office, I try to put up, you know, educational stuff for the client each day. So I had a bunch the last month, I had all different things out of explained pain up there. And now I, I was just thinking the next thing I was going to pop is actually the quote right out of this article where I just read off with all the uh, imaging examples, right? Um, and each week kind of put different little excerpts from that in there. And the clients really appreciate those little tiny things. Um, and I've even bought a bunch of copies of the Adrian Lau book, um, Why Do I Hurt? It's like a little oh, yeah. mini pamphlet book. It's like four clients. And I just give them send out me to one. people. Yeah, I'll send you one, Brendan. The, the, your your copy of Why Do I Hurt is about this thick, though. Um, <laughs> uh, so... Uh, but I give it to them. So I'm like, Hey, I'll, I can explain to you, but this has some nice pictures and, uh, he's better at explaining it than me. So why don't you just take that as a gift? I'm like, Oh my God, this is really, really good. And so those little kind of educational experiences, one, they get smarter and know more about themselves and feel confident, but it also endears their relationship to you. Absolutely. And all of those good experiences you guys shared, like what it comes down to is you were treated like a human. You weren't just treated yeah. like the injured bodyguard anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think because mm-hmm. that's something that happens a lot in the therapy world because like we're so used to seeing all these injuries like it's nothing to me to see a blown out knee or rotator cuff because I see it literally all day. So in my schedule, mm-hmm. it's like oh another knee injury, another back injury, and this. But to the client, like this is a brand new experience, and it's probably scary. It's probably changing their lives in one or more ways. So if it takes five minutes of my time to actually explain that to somebody and go to that next deeper level. And it creates that trust in the relationship. Like why would I be stupid to not do that mm-hmm. and just put a hot pack on you and walk away? Like yeah. I use modalities. I don't think there's anything wrong with them. I sit there and I talk to my patient while the tens machine is on them though, explaining what it's doing, why it's doing it. And just mm-hmm. general education about things. Because again, like it's the relationship that's going to help here to build the trust yeah. to get you to do the things that you want to do. Yeah. I mean, and I think my injuries too, like I get it for sure. I have very similar stories to you guys. Yeah. yeah. And well, and I think, I mean, you're a great example of someone who 
has kind of removed themselves from the bigger problem, which is the overall medical system that doesn't necessarily give clients a great chance because it doesn't give therapists necessarily a great chance to provide the service that they should be able to serve, right? And if you're in a traditional, you know, physical therapy setting where you got hundreds of clients coming through a day and you don't have enough therapists, you have these people who are like, well, I'm going to do the best that I can, but that might mean they get 10 minutes of 15 minutes of FaceTime with me and then they go follow their sheet. Whereas, Mm -hmm. I mean, someone who can step out on their own like you have and be able to spend you know, a whole hour with someone one-on-one every time they come in, that service might cost more in some instances, uh, at at least in, I know, the United States. Sometimes that means it's outside of an insurance uh, or only partially reimbursed. Um, But you can provide treatment that that person really wants. You can treat them like a person, not just, hey, second knee injury today that came in. It might mean changing your model for delivery, because I think a lot of times there's therapists who might want to do a better job. But if they work at, you know, you know, X physical therapy, uh, they might not even be able to provide that service because of the way that the business is set up. Exactly, because it's set up as a business Mm -hmm. to turn a profit in some situations or to keep the lights on and keep the doors open sometimes it gets to a point for places where they have to see 20, 30, 40 people a day to keep the lights on. So I get it. And I think even like I've worked in some capacities where I've only had 20 minutes with people and it's a struggle and stressful. And I have never felt more stressed than when I was in that type of situation, just because I'm like, there's so much I want to say, and I know I can't do it all. So what's the shortest, easiest way to do it. And it got to the point for me where I just, that stress wasn't worth it anymore. And so, yeah, like my client volume is less now, but it's better quality. And I, 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 I recognize I'm fortunate to be in a position where I could make that choice to go do that. And I know not a lot of people can. Um, however, I think even if you are in that model where you only have a certain number of minutes with somebody, let's just do the best we can to treat them still like a person, be active. And even if it's only one or two exercises, that's cool. It doesn't have to be a full hour long workout. You can still Mm -hmm. get a really, really great result by doing one or two things. If you've done a good assessment and you know what their, their true problem is. So there's, there's hope for it. Even if you are in one of the PT mills, if you're willing to, to go there. Yeah. curious. Like go on, Brendan. No, I have a, I have a question or a thought experiment. So you, you continue. Okay. I, I'll, I'll bring my, I was also going to say, um, part of it too, to be able to kind of get to where you are, like, I'm sure you've grown a lot as a businesswoman, um, to learn how to deliver this model in, in a different setting, right. Um, and to go out and build a business. And that's speaks to you taking the time to learn a new skill set. Uh, and learn a lot of things to be able to support yourself, which is to continue to grow your career and provide the services you want, something you've probably had to, you know, dive into. Absolutely. It's been a lot of trial and error and it's been a lot of experiences of, I've seen my fair share of PTs and ATs and chiros and doctors and learning what I don't like as much as what I do like. And 
feel like it was Eric Cressy where I read something one time about how it's better to like outgrow a space than try to grow into a gym or clinic mm-hmm. space or something yeah. like that. You always and grow. You always grow out of never into. Is the is a business? Yeah, a very good I, business principle. Yeah, I read that when I was like still working at a gym, and it was a beautiful facility that we were growing into. And I remember reading that and being like, "Hey, when I'm ready to go out on my own, like that's what I'm remembering." And then when I started my own business, I was renting a room from couple other massage therapists and I paid my rent for my little you know 15 by 15 room or whatever got my equipment in there and kept growing and growing that way and work being open-minded enough to ask questions and recognizing my limits was also key like I hired a business consultant and a financial advisor and all of these things because they didn't teach us that in school business class Mm -hmm. in school was like this is what a principal investment is. And like, they didn't even tell us about charging tax on your services or anything yeah. like that. Like I learned that the hard way through the CRA that I was like, I'm supposed to be charging GST. All right, let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> um, <Oops. laughs> sorry, better to ask for forgiveness sometimes and permission. I don't know. But yeah, yeah it, was, it was a lot of learning in different things. And the most interesting thing that I learned through all of it was it wasn't about more certifications. It wasn't about more technical skills or manual skills or anything that makes me a successful business owner. It's that I tried things and failed and tried things and got better at them and learned and grew that way. Yeah. And And also knew race and move on. Yeah. And also knew your blind spots. I think that's a that's a very key point. Is you knew, like when we're when a trainer, you need to know your blind spots when to punt that ball to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Financial advisor, business consultant. Um, yeah. Awesome. How many years have you owned your own business? When did you go out on your own? Twenty eighteen. So I'm in year four. Just finishing up year four. Awesome. You made it through COVID. It's a win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's my probably my proudest. Like I got a master's in there at the same time and I am more proud Woo! of COVID than my Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. That's impressive. So Thank my you. my real quick uh my thought experiment that I wanted to hear from you two, and maybe you've experienced this before, but is there a world where we can treat people almost like group therapy? Like we talk about these therapy places where it's like crack, put a ice pack on it, put a tens unit on it, go to the next person, go to the next person. Like, is there a world where you can treat three, four, five people at a time and do it right? Or is it just, and maybe there's a number, maybe it's like, I could do that with three people. Cause I remember when I played, I played one year of college football and then I had too many injuries. Uh, but I remember being in the training room injured, uh, it ran, it ran very, very well. Like the training room, because it was like a, it, it felt like group rehab uh, or group therapy, right? Not this like, you know, we, but we had four or five like trainers. Well, we had two trainers who were paid by the school and then three or four uh, college students who were helping out. So we had five people to 
60 football players, but I always felt like well taken care of. And even though they would like, Hey, go put your, you know, go sit in the ice bath or give me five minutes and then I'm going to wrap your ankle. It never felt like, uh, and maybe it was just because it was a community based thing, but do we think that it is possible to create, or, or is it just like, it's, you can do it. It would just take a ton of work. Have you seen it? Do you think it's possible? Yeah. I Either think the of you? That is key though, for sure. It's how you cultivate the environment and the mindset of everybody and the whole, I imagine with the training staff and the students there, like everyone was on the same page and had the same end goal. Yeah. And I think if that's there, absolutely. Um, like I've, I was the head AT of a football team for a few years and it was the same thing. There was myself and another therapist and we had like our 65 guys and it would be a gong show in the clinic, but it was fun and everybody got what they needed out of it. Yeah. I think, I think it's absolutely possible. Um, I think this is where strength training and therapists can work together really, really well. Because if you can have somebody who can do the assessment, do the diagnostic part, give the, you know, the green light, red light on certain things, then you can funnel somebody into a group training program with a trainer who knows how to respect all those boundaries, knows their progressions, regressions. And that was like the facility that I worked at when we were a MBSC Thrive, like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to butcher what... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the licensed facility is that what we were yeah 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 it worked great like i did assessments i was like here this is the injuries these people all need to just be hip dominant and then the mm-hmm. the head trainer could just have at it and it was great and they got their rehab they saved money because they weren't seeing me they were paying their gym membership mm-hmm. they got great outcomes because they had the trust in me and the trainer working together on it they had the environment of the other people who are in a similar situation. So absolutely mm-hmm. it can work, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you think about that, then like what made that training room a positive environment for you was you had trainers who you had relationships with and you had teammates right. who you had relationships right. with, who you felt comfortable in that space going through that with. And you contrast that to the kind of uh, cold conveyor belt of the PT mill that where right. you don't know any of these other people doing rehab, you don't, you feel like you're on an island and you're uncertain. Whereas like when you're in the training room on the table, you're talking to your buddy, he knows what you're going through. They know what you're going yeah, through yeah, yeah. and it creates a communal aspect. And um, I think about two things. Um, one guy out of Spalding that we work with, a physiatrist, Zach Isaac, he runs a group kind of chronic pain exercise class. He sees all these mm. people individually and then they have an exercise class that is covered through insurance that these patients can all go to and he's already worked with them. And then they all work out in, in at Spalding together and he has their adjustments and they all exercise and Spalding is a different setting than us. Like we have a lot of people who might be very exercise focused who come to see myself or John, but these are people who probably don't have exercise on the front of their mind. And he gets them in an environment where they're starting to do know safe low-level things that are non-pain provocative and then he starts to build them forward to a point where they feel like exercising and sometimes they come end up with us um and one thing that i tend to do similar does obviously 
would obviously be very similar to the model Megan just discussed was like, I try to make referrals into the group setting before I try to make referrals into the one-on-one -on -one setting uh, out of my office, because usually, especially the kind of chronic pain people, they're the ones that are going to tell you they need one-on-one -on -one personal training. And in some instances, mm -hmm. they do. Um, some instances, they might not be ready for a group, but very often, if I can see them or John can see them and we can figure out, hey, where are our red lights, our yellow lights and our green lights as far as what they are able to do, I can go and talk to Courtney or Jess uh, or Steve or whoever's running their group and say, hey, you know, Brendan's going to come join your group today. Um, he's got a sore right knee because he was been running hills with his football team. Um, so we're going to do I mostly. Hate, I hate when you do that. And it's true. That's, that's because... And he's going to do all hip dominant stuff. We're going to pull out the impact at least for the first couple of weeks. And then let's uh, check back in in two weeks. When you go to work out in that group, you immediately get a community uh, feeling. Uh, where people are there to support you um, and you feel like, okay, someone's going to kind of hold me accountable because if I'm not there on Wednesday, they're going to be like, hey, Brendan, where were you on Wednesday? And they start to feel like they're part of a community. And um, that is such a big part of getting them to move forward where sometimes if they're one-on-one, -on -one, they're liable to cancel more. They're going to spend more of their time feeling like they are going to hold on to that trainer for support. Whereas when you're in a group setting, you know, they have to do a little bit on their own, um, which it might be scary, but it helps get them a little bit more autonomous um, in their relationship. So you're right. It can be done, I think, with the right people around you um, mm -hmm. in the right yeah. system to help put them into that uh, group setting to begin with. Yeah. And I think if you don't have a system like what CFSC builds out and that sort of thing, too, it might be easier to just start with like a specific injury group setting. Like I know mm -hmm. around here anyways hip replacement group classes do great. Yeah. You know, so then at least yeah, everybody's like kind of on the same page. So whether they're three weeks out or three months out, it's easy to manage a group like that because everybody's there for the same thing versus mm -hmm. a group rehab dynamic where it's like this person has an acute disc thing and this person has an ankle sprain and this person has meniscus surgery. Like that mm -hmm. can, can be more challenging to navigate. And I think people would likely feel a little bit more again on their own island to start until you as a therapist or coach can figure out your system on how to navigate and rotate through people because it's an art right like with mm -hmm. coaching and therapy like it's more of an art than a science yeah absolutely um well, well thank you thank you for at the one hour <laughs> and we're gonna get to our final segment that we do every episode and this is where we do our book recommendation and I didn't even warn Megan, but I'm sure she'll have something for us. Um, and so I'll <laughs> even let you go last. Special. So you, you can, can choose think. a net Netflix special. Yes. You yeah, want. exactly. Whatever you want. Um, but so we'll have our book recommendation uh, for the day. So I will go first. I'll give it to Brendan. And then we will let our special guest uh, finish it off. So, Take us home. Uh, I, I just got this book um, this last week. It's and I've already kind of flew through uh, about seventy five percent of it. Uh, very good, easy read. And this is um, the Quadrant System Ooh, by oh. yeah by yeah. Daniel Bove. I think it's Bove. There's no little thing over the e, so it's not Bove. I don't think. 
Uh, sorry, Daniel, if I say your name wrong. Uh, he's an NBA strength and conditioning coach, uh, performance coach, um, and it's very good. It's, so the subline, if you didn't see, is navigating stress in team sport. And so how to manage training, recovery over a week, over a competitive season, how to pair stresses and choose stresses so that they can recover and you get the adaptation that you want. Um, because I know if you're someone who is working in team sports, it's not as simple as, hey, we just lift – two or three days a week and get the outcome we want on game day. You need to choose when you do it, how it pairs up with the things that are being done in practice, how it pairs up uh, with what the athlete needs and what they're doing from a recovery standpoint. And he gives you a pretty simple uh, explanation. Uh, there's lots of graphics, if you like graphics. Um, and it's very, uh, it's very uh, thoughtfully written. Yep. I, I, I think it's really, really good. Um, you know, if you're into understanding programming and, and thinking about thoughtfully how to pair that into a season with people who are competing, um, very helpful. And so even if you're not in a team sports setting, if you're working with athletes who are in season training, which most of us are, um, if you're in a private setting as well, really, really good. So uh, highly recommended. He's self-published, I believe. Yeah, self-published. Um, I got it off Amazon. Uh, it was very, very, it's been very, very good. So highly recommend that. Nice. So I've recently, over the last year, gotten really into using data to try to make better decisions uh, and with the football team specifically. Mm -hmm. So I recently read the book Moneyball by nice. Michael Lewis about how the Oakland Athletics, who had the cheapest team by salary, still was able to win hundreds of games every year. Uh, for a multiple years while the New York Yankees were 200, 300, $400 million a year and still make, and they were still making the playoffs and how they use data uh, more specifically on base percentage and slugging percentage, which didn't exist until uh, the Oakland mm -hmm. athletics started making their own data and using their own data points to make better selections in the draft, uh, the baseball draft. So that was fascinating. And I love the idea of, using data to make better decisions and trying to get ahead of the game um, when you might not have the same resources that everybody has, but we can all, we can all use data points. So maybe I can get a leg up that way. And if you haven't watched the movie, watch the movie. Get on no, it. there's a movie. I, I don't, I'm don't ruin the book for me. It's oh, you haven't watched Moneyball, the movie with Brad Pitt. No, no, and Jonah like Hill? The Godfather. I refuse to watch The Godfather because I read the book first, and the book is so amazing oh, that no. I can't have Brendan. movies. Brendan, ruin watch it. The no. Godfather. No, and The Godfather the too. Again. No, the no. book is so good. I can't. I can't oh. ruin the book. The movies ruin the book because I have this idea of what the characters look like and how they speak, and I can't have the movies ruin it for me. Oh, Sorry, God, not doing it. All right, Matt, Matt, Megan, you're up. <laughs> I'm mind blown by that right now, Brandon. Wow. I'm sorry. Um, you would love those movies. I know you would. Especially Moneyball, too. Great movie. Um, the book I, I just finished rereading is called Transcend, and it's by Scott Kaufman, I believe is the last name. And it's the human psychology route. So I've been getting away from the hard science a little bit and leaning more into the psychology and understanding human behavior and behavior change. And I love this book 
because it takes Maslow's hierarchy of needs and takes it to another level and really helps you understand where somebody gets their values and beliefs and judgments and how to feel safe and secure in who they are, what they're doing, so that then you can therefore add positive behavior change on top of that. So it was more of a personal read at first and then completely changed how I talk to clients and athletes and everything from just the complete opposite perspective. So I've sent this book to like three or four of my friends and it's been a hit all around. So I highly recommend it. Going on the Amazon list immediately. Yeah. Beauty. It'll be in the show notes. So uh, for anybody listening, we always put these in the show notes so you can go and pick them up on your own. Um, so please go ahead and, and do that. So, well, thank you for uh, taking your time tonight and, and joining us. It's always a pleasure. Probably won't be the last time. And uh, yeah, thank you everybody for listening. Brendan, it's good to see you. I'm going to go nurse my injuries. <laughs> Thanks, man. All right. Everybody have <laughs> nice a good night. And uh, until next time, everybody, thank you for tuning in. Thanks.